Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you this Sabbath. I was up in uh, the Washington, D.C. area last Sabbath. We had the uh, regional conference up in Allentown. I drove up to Washington, actually spent the Sabbath in uh, Baltimore. Um, Mr. Rod McNair and his family went up. Uh, they spent the Sabbath out in Winchester. So it was uh, very profitable weekend. These regional conferences have gone very well. Certainly appreciate your prayers. We've got one more. It'll be number nine uh, in Richland, Washington uh, next weekend. Uh, but it's been very encouraging to hear the feedback. Uh, people are very appreciative of being there. We had about 35 people in uh, Allentown. We'll have about 45 people up in Richland. But certainly would appreciate your prayers. Thank you very much for the special music. That was very inspiring. You know, last weekend we had, uh, or at the regional conference, Mr. Rod McNair and uh, his wife had their children there. Uh, his brother, Jonathan from New York, had their children there. If we'd have thought ahead, we could have had a children's choir. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the kids enjoyed the swimming pool, being able to use the swimming pool. <clears throat> Brethren, the Sabbath is a time to reflect, it's a time to think, it's a time to refocus our lives. We certainly have a very peaceful and beautiful Sabbath here today, not quite as hot as it was yesterday. You know, last uh, Friday I drove up through the Shenandoah Valley and watched the temperature uh, in the car registering outside temperature, about 100 degrees the whole way up. Took a walk at the uh, Chloris home on Friday evening and perspired the whole way around the block. It must have been about 100 degrees. But we got up the next morning, it was about 74 degrees, I think, something like that. So a front had gone through, and it was very refreshing to have some cooler weather. Driving down on uh, Tuesday, I think it was, through the Shenandoah Valley, just absolutely beautiful uh, valley up that way with the mountains and the trees and the very rich agricultural land. A lot of history up that way. But just an extremely peaceful drive coming back. Not a whole lot of traffic down 81. So it is kind of inspiring once in a while to get out and have a different view than across your desk. You know, I think uh, this past week has been a very eventful week. Certainly appreciate the, uh, the efforts of everybody in the IT department doing what they had to do to uh, achieve liftoff for the university. Uh, I got an email, a couple emails last week that said uh, this is really a historic day whenever the, the university was starting. I had to think, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's starting today. But I was busy creating uh, class outlines and doing other things. Most of us were running around doing whatever we do. If uh, anybody ever remember the uh, Walter Cronkite uh, You Are There program back in the 50s and the 60s, you know, Wednesday was a day like all days except you were there, <laughs> and I was there. Uh, I think we'll look back and maybe appreciate the historic things that we have been part of that we may not fully comprehend right now because we're just here. We're just doing our job daily, and yet God is accomplishing a lot of things. I'd like you to think about some things this afternoon as we begin the sermon. Why are you here today? Well, it's God's Sabbath. But why are you here in the living church of God today? You could be many other places. 
Why are you here? What has been the focus of your life this past week? You might say, well, just getting through the week. <laughs> you know, moving or whatever it is that you've been doing. But expand the question a little bit. What is the focus of your life? Where are you going in life? What do you hope to achieve in life? What are you going to be doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? What sort of goals do you have for your future? Other than, you know, get a job, get a paycheck, make it through the week, you know, show up Monday morning and work for another paycheck. What is the focus of your life? What goals do you have, especially for young people? And those of you that are young enough to still think about the future, which should be all of us. What are your goals in life? Do you have a direction and a purpose for your life? Or are you just floating along? And sometimes circumstances change and things happen. And we have to readjust our goals and refocus from time to time. You know, we purchased a software package for the university. It didn't work. We had to be resourceful, use one of the seven laws of success. We've been talking about uh, a lot in the regional conferences about the importance of teamwork. And everybody had to work together this week to just pitch in and go the extra two or three or four or five miles, not just extra one mile, to get something accomplished. What are your goals? What is your mission? Let me ask another question. Are your goals and is your mission in harmony with God's goals for his church and with his mission for the church? Are we on the same page? Or do you have your goals taking you this way and the church is going that way? Are we on the same page? Let's look quickly at the mission of the church by way of review, and just kind of ask yourself, am I moving in the same direction? Here, Jesus mentioned in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, the church that Jesus Christ founded was commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Verse 15 of Mark 16, it says, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is our mission as a church. And yet some people today are very satisfied to start their own little living room church and just talk about the Bible and talk about God. And it's just a very personal, uh, very focused mission. Yet our mission is to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God, to warn the world about what's coming, but to go into all the world and do that. And we're doing that as a church. Over hundreds of thousands of television of, uh, with magazines, about 325, 26,000 magazines going out, over 240 radio and television stations. We're doing that. We're striving to do that and asking God to open more doors that we can go through. And it's our tithes and offerings and prayers and dedicated efforts that enable the church to do that. You, know, you can't do that sitting at home in your living room. 
just kind of talking about the Bible to your friends. We have a mission to accomplish today. We've been called to work as a team to do that. In Matthew 24, a couple of places. Matthew chapter 24. In verse 14, it mentions this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for witness. It's not going to convert everybody, but the world is going to hear God says. And he is going to open the doors and make that possible for a group of people to do the job that, he's been give, that they've been given to do. If we don't see the mission, we're not trying to do it, we're not going to do it. But if we're focused in that direction, God is going to make it possible as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, we are getting close to the end of an age. The world is not going to like what it hears. We might think, well, you know, it's no big deal. You know, it's just times like any other times. The Pope was interviewed recently. He was on vacation down in southern Italy. And a number of priests came and had a meeting with him and asked him some questions. And they asked him about uh, the gospel. Here is the Pope's understanding of the gospel. He said, We proclaim the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is not a distant utopia in a better world which may be achieved in 50 years' time or who knows when. The kingdom of God is God himself. The kingdom of God is God himself. God himself is near to us, and we must draw close to this God who is is close, for he was made... uh, doesn't make sense. For he was... <laughs> In more ways than one, it does not make sense. He <laughs> said, God is near to us, and we must draw close to this God who is... It still doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, we've had some sermons recently and a lot of questions asked about what is the gospel. The Pope doesn't know what the gospel is, but we do. It involves the coming kingdom of God. It involves the opportunity of salvation where Christ gave his life for us. A number of things are involved with that. But the world doesn't know what the gospel is. We have been commissioned to preach and explain to the world what the gospel is all about. It is more than just some little thing. If we're not doing that, then God will raise up stones to do that. But we've been called and given the opportunity to be part of that. Preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God to warn the world. You can just read down through Matthew 24. The disciples have asked Christ in verse 3, what's going to be the sign of your coming? How are we going to know we're getting close to the end of the age? And Jesus said, don't worry about it. You know, you don't have to worry about things like that. He didn't say that. He said, watch for specific things. He talks about wars and rumors of wars. That's pretty much what dominates the news today. He talks about famines and earthquakes and disease epidemics. 
But down in verse, uh, the latter part of that chapter, verse 36 through about 44, it says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. In other words, you're not going to know the exact time. But as in the days of Noah, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And Noah was building an ark in his backyard. And people were probably, hey, Noah, going to rain today? You know, you've been working at that for about 75 years so far. You think it's going to rain? He probably took a lot of flack. He probably took a lot of flack. But then it did start to rain later. And people were probably knocking on the door. No, no, I didn't mean what I said. <laughs> you got room for a couple more? As in the days of Noah, people were surprised. People were shocked when it began to rain and didn't stop. We've been telling the world for 50 or 60 years so far what's going to happen, what is coming. Things are beginning to happen. Your prophecy is coming alive today. That's not just a tagline that we use in the magazine. It really is happening today. We are told to watch, verse 42, Watch, therefore, for you don't know the hour. You don't know the exact time. But we're to watch. Verse 44, it says, Therefore you also be ready. Be ready. Are you prepared for what's coming? Will you be ready when it does come? And that's what I want to focus on more today. Be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you, basically when the world, does not expect. We've been commissioned to preach the gospel, to warn the world, to feed the flock, explain the truth to those that God is calling into contact with his church. But notice also in Luke chapter 1. Now, we could go a number of places to study the mission of the church. But in Luke chapter 1, you have a prophecy here of John the Baptist. What his mission was, Mr. Armstrong understood this was a mission for the church also. He, he tried you know, to the, the best of his ability to do that. We are focused in the same direction today. Verse 16, it says, He will turn the many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, this was the role of the prophets down through the ages. It was to cry aloud, to spare not, to show God's people why they were going to be punished, what was going to happen in the future. And some did turn to God as a result of their preaching. And we have the same mission today, to turn the hearts of many, as we heard in the comments that were read during the announcements. When God is calling a person into contact with the church, they learn the truth. They are excited. Where has this been? I remember talking with an older lady in her 70s one time. She said that, uh, you know, I think my life has been wasted. I didn't learn about the truth until I was 70-some years old. But she was excited because she was learning the truth. It all began to fit together. But part of John's mission was to turn the hearts of many of the children of Israel. You know, many people today in Israelite countries don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. 
They don't know what their mission is. They don't know what their purpose is. And part of our job is to explain that. He will also go before him, that is, John the Baptist will go before Christ, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and turn the hearts of the fathers, the parents, to the children. You're rebonding, rebuilding the family, the foundation of society. And the disobedient, the rebellious people, to the wisdom of the just, explaining God's way, explaining the truth to people. Again, fulfilling the prophecies back in Malachi chapter 4. If you go back and read Malachi, those are talking really about the end of the age. And yet Jesus said John did you know, partially fulfill that in his time. But the implication is that the ultimate fulfillment will come just before the return of Jesus Christ. But notice the other aspect, the other mission of the church here, is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 24, to be ready, to watch and be ready. We read here, part of the mission of the church is to make ready, to prepare a people, to prepare a people for the Lord. And we've got to know what we're going to do before you can prepare I've entitled the sermon today, Preparing a People. Preparing a People. This is our mission as a church, is to prepare a people to reign with Jesus Christ, to rule on this earth, to develop the character and the perspective that Jesus Christ has, the character and perspective of God. We have a number of programs that we've developed to do that. But I want to ask you, what are you doing to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ? What are you doing to prepare for the future that you know and you've heard is coming? We need to be preparing. We need to be getting ready for the return of Jesus Christ. We should be, above all people, ready. We should not be taken by surprise. You've heard sermons like this for years. If you've been in the church for 20 or 30, you've heard sermons like this for 20 or 30. Are you ready? Are you excited? Are you prepared? Or will you be taken by surprise? Let's look in the sermon today at a number of things we can do to prepare, to be ready, and not be caught by surprise. The first thing I want to talk about is staying alert to the signs, to the significance of Bible prophecy. We need to be staying alert to the significance of Bible prophecy. And we've heard sermons in the last decade or so by people that are no longer with us about prediction addiction. You don't want to be addicted to prophecy, so just you know, leave it alone. Yet the Bible says something very different. Very different. You turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Paul is ending the letter to the church of Thessalonica. And just as you end letters sometimes, you know, well, it's been good talking to you, you know, be good, stuff like that. Paul is winding down, giving general bits of advice. He mentions in verse 20, 1 Thessalonians 5.20 says, Do not despise prophecies. Don't take prophecy lightly. Don't take it lightly. 
I heard another sermon by, given by an individual in another church organization. He was talking about prophecy addiction, not prediction addiction. He just coined the, t- the same title. And his message was, don't worry about prophecy. It'll all work out. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, don't despise prophecies. Don't take them lightly. Don't scoff at prophecy. Jesus said, watch. Keep your eyes open. Stay alert. Don't be surprised. Don't be taken by surprise. You might want to go back and just read through Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21. All of those chapters end by saying, watch, keep your eyes open, stay alert. And it's not just a matter of just kind of gawking on the sidewalk. What are you doing? I'm watching. Watching for what? I don't know. I'm just told to watch. (laughs) No, we're to watch for specific things. And the specific things that we've been talking about for the last 40 or 50 years are happening today. And yet most people in the world, even world leaders, including the Pope, are totally oblivious to the meaning of the events that are taking place today. In Revelation 17, noticing some specific things. In Revelation chapter 17, it talks about ten nations are going to give their power, surrender their sovereignty whatever phrase you want to use, to a beast, to a leader. Verse 12, it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they will receive authority for one hour, a very short time, as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they give their power. The phrase in Europe today is surrendering sovereignty. You surrender your sovereignty as a sovereign nation to a European government. That's the terms that they're using today. They will give their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war with the lamb. That jumps ahead just a little bit. Now, people have laughed today whenever we say that there's going to be a union of ten nations or a an emergence of 10 nations in Europe. They say, well, look, there's 25, 26, 27 now. Uh, You know, can't be 10. But if you've been watching, if you've been listening carefully to the news, every time they get into trouble over there, they talk about, well, we need to think about a two-speed Europe. A small group of nations that can work together, step out ahead of everybody else, and work together. And I think the Treaty of Maastricht allows for any eight or more, any eight or more that decide to work together on a common defense force, on uh, whatever. All of a sudden, you're back in the ballpark of ten nations. That's what the Bible says. And this is the direction we appear to be moving today. You know, they didn't pass their constitution, but if you've been reading the news carefully, it said the constitution still exists. They've just changed the words, muddied the water so people don't know what's happening. But virtually everything that was in the constitution is still there. A president of Europe, a foreign minister for Europe, a common defense force, a central bank, a a European court. All this stuff is there. 
and things are moving in a direction. It's slow and there's bumps along the way. This wasn't happening 50 years ago, but it's happening today. Things are moving in a definite direction. Now, the person that looks like that you know, we would recognize as the beast uh, does not appear to be visible on the scene, put it that way. <laughs> not visible yet, but chances are the person is alive. We'll have to see how that works out. But the Bible says ten nations. The people in Europe are saying, let's talk about a two-speed Europe and things get, you know, if we can't get what we want right away, then those that are really with the program will move out ahead of the others. This is where we are today, brethren. Earlier in chapter 17, it talks about a woman, <clears throat> a harlot that sits on many waters. That means on many people. There are many people involved with whom the kings of this earth have committed fornication. There's been an intimate relationship with the church, this church that's being talked about, and the kings of this earth. Very interesting article in The Economist magazine recently talking about the diplomatic core of the Catholic Church. It said the Catholic Church is unique in that it has a diplomatic core. I thought I brought the right news report today, but I didn't. That's going to be next week's news report. <laughs> you know, the Baptist Church doesn't have that. Presbyterian Church doesn't have that. Methodist Church doesn't have that. But the Catholic Church does have certified ambassadors all around the world, sitting in on UN conferences, advising nations. That's what this verse is talking about. And they have done that down through history. Read a little bit about the Holy Roman Empire. And the tussles, power struggles between the Pope and the Emperor. This has been the Catholic Church's history down through the ages. But it talks about a woman committing fornication with the kings of this earth, and the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Most of the false doctrines that are believed today, Christmas, Easter, the Trinity, going to heaven, have all come out of the Catholic Church, and they picked them up here and there from pagan teachings, mixed them together into a very intoxicating brew that has deceived the whole world. And yet we have people drifting away from the church, going back to the Catholic Church, going back to the Methodist Church. It's unbelievable. In verse 3 it says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, a woman riding this beast. And the Pope is going to basically take that role one of these days. They've been operating in the, behind the scenes over the last 40, 50 years, basically telling Europe, you know, you're off track. You need to get religion back in, uh, in view. Pope has been telling people that go back to your roots. What he means by that, go back to your Catholic roots. It's the Catholic faith that made Europe. We're going to see a religious revival in Europe one of these days. Very interesting article, very short one. Uh, I'd like to get a hold of the, the bigger article. But by Paul Johnson, he's a British historian. He's Catholic. He's a Catholic historian living in Britain. 
wrote a book and wrote an article in The Spectator recently. He says, Benedict is a cultural figure of considerable importance. Of considerable importance. It says, Pope Benedict was also right on the mark in the 50th anniversary of Europe by pointing out that this bureaucratic concept, the way they're trying to run Europe today, with its repudiation of the continent's Christian and cultural origins, is shallow and materialistic and doomed to oblivion. We're going to see something else happen in Europe. A point undermined by the terrifying low birth rates of its peoples. Had he been less circumspect, listen to this very carefully, had he been less circumspect and spoke more openly, he might have added, as I do, Paul Johnson says. Now, Paul Johnson is a Catholic, and he's a British person, and he's looking at Europe. He says, uh, had he been less circumspect, he might have added that the Brussels Europe, the Europe being run out of Brussels today, combines all the worst characteristics of its components. French arrogance, Italian corruption, German tunnel vision, Spanish bloody-mindedness, Dutch obstinacy, Belgian cowardice, Austrian anti-Semitism, uh, Portuguese evasiveness, and Danish cop-outing. They cop out of everything they don't like. Not to speak of the new Slav contributions, Polish irrealism, Czech confusion, Slavic evasion, and all topped by Hungarian deviousness. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> you know, this is not going to last. This is not going to last. You know, as the Germans exert themselves more and more, the French are not going to be part of that. They will not follow the Germans. It's just not going to happen. We may see that whole thing come apart and be restructured a bit differently with a Catholic Central Europe group of nations. We just have to watch and see what's going to happen. Europe is the worst thing to happen to Europe. In other words, the EU is the worst thing to happen to Europe since the two world wars it started. It's going to be interesting to see what happens over there. But the Bible talks about ten nations. It talks about a woman riding the beast, and that's where the Pope wants to be guiding and riding this thing that is going to rise up in Europe. You can go back and read Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, where it links what's going to happen in Europe with the Roman Empire. The links are there. The links are there. And it's not going to be surprising one of these days if, uh, as I think Otto von Habsburg made the comment, he says, there may yet be a role. There may yet be a role for the Austrian crown and the Catholic faith, basically. They see what's necessary. There's going to have to be religion that is going to pull those nations together. And if they have a common enemy in the Islamic people, that will push them together. We are living at a time when these prophecies are coming to pass. And again, my question is, are we ready for what's coming? Are we prepared for what's coming? What are we going to be doing when Christ returns? You know, this should guide us and should help us. 
Notice one other scripture in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, I have just been blown away by some statements that I've heard from ministers and some different organizations. I think I've commented on this in the past, but I was talking with a guy, that, a fellow that was on the board of one of the organizations, and I asked him a number of years ago, I said, what are you guys going to do with the U.S. and Britain material? He looked at me, and he said, we're not sure what to do with it. We're not sure what to do with it. Mr. Armstrong knew what to do with it. You know, the identities, not only of Britain and America and Canada and other places, but these identities are keys to understanding Bible prophecy. And if you throw away the keys, then you will make statements like, well, don't worry about prophecy. It'll all work out. Because people are not watching. The fellow that gave the sermon on prophecy addiction is another key person in another organization. These are the messages that some people are hearing today. They're not hearing those messages here. Now, we have a message to deliver. Notice what Peter says, Second Peter chapter 2, or chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 19. He said, we have the prophetic word made more sure. If you have an older King James, it says, we have a more sure word of prophecy which you do well to take heed. You need to listen. As a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. In other words, as we get closer to the end, you need to pay closer attention. Not forget. Not stop watching. I was talking with another person recently. I said, well, prophecy doesn't relate to me. I love Jesus. Well, if you love Jesus, you're going to listen to what he said and to what he inspired. And Paul said, you know, don't despise prophecy. Don't take it lightly. Listen, keep your eyes open, watch. But notice Peter uses the word we. Peter was writing to people in the church. He was talking about the church that he was part of. He said, we have a more sure word of prophecy that you would be wise to listen to and to heed. If we're going to be ready when Jesus Christ returns, we have got to be alert to what's happening in the world and be putting things together in a right way. Notice some other things we need to be doing to prepare ourselves, and we're striving to do this with the church. Point number two is to learn to show love, mercy, and compassion. You know, our job is not just to warn and walk away. You guys better get it, and then turn around and walk away. <laughs> no, we need to be able to show love and mercy and compassion. We heard about it again in the announcements. Go back to John 15. We go through this every year at the Passover. These were some of the instructions that Jesus Christ left with his disciples. He was going over the fundamentals of Christianity the night before he was crucified. In John 15, <clears throat> verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another. That you love one another as I have loved you. The word here is agape, or agape. A Greek word that means an unselfish, outgoing concern. 
where you care for people. And you show that with your actions and your words. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends, to take time to send a card, to make a call, to help somebody out, as opposed to being too busy. You are my friends if you do what I've commanded you. Down in verse 17, these things I command you, I instruct you, that you love one another. John 13, verse 35, Jesus said the distinguishing characteristic of a Christian would be to love one another. Notice in verse 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this characteristic, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And it's got to begin at home. It's got to be the way we deal with each other here in the office, the way we deal with other people that we come in contact, whether or not they're in the church of God. We need to be characterized by love. You know, what is the characteristic of the Philadelphia era? What should be by name? You know, Philadelphia is brotherly love. And God names things because that's what he wants. He wants to name, he names things because of what it should be. And we should be able to exude, not this icky, sticky, feely type of stuff that you know, the world talks about, but a genuine love and caring for people. A genuine love and caring for people. The Philadelphia era, sometimes I think, we, well, we're Philadelphians because we're doing the work. Get out of my way, I'm doing the work. <laughs> No, we need to have love and concern as we do the work. As we do the work. Now, if we're not there, then we need to prepare. We need to get ready. We need to be doing these things. Jesus also said in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, we're to love our enemies. Yeah, but you know what he said to me? I've got reasons for holding some grudges here. No, we're to love our enemies and to treat people the way we would like to be treated. Matthew 23, that's one of my favorite scriptures, just to, to, to notice. This is what Jesus was saying again as he was approaching the end of his ministry. You know, he could have been focused on himself. You know, I've only got a couple more days. I don't, I don't, this is going to be tough. Uh, you guys need to pray for me. He could have been focused that way. But notice what his concern was in Matthew 23. He just chewed out the Pharisees for preaching wrong things. But in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You know, I wanted to help. I wanted to, you know, to point out a lot of things to you. You wouldn't listen. Jesus Christ was a compassionate person. I guess you could say the original compassionate conservative. <laughs> but he wasn't tossing around political slogans. This was how he lived his life. 
you know, little kids wanted to see him, and the, the, the apostles would they say, hey, get those kids out of here. He's busy. He's a very important person. He says, bring them here. He picked them up, held them, talked to them. You know, Jesus Christ was a compassionate person. He cared about the people that he was around because he knew what was coming. You and I know what's coming. And we need to develop the same type of compassion and concern. But showing love is something that we need to be working on. And if we're not a compassionate person, we're not a caring person, we're not a sensitive person, maybe we need to work on that a little bit to be more caring, more compassionate, so that we're ready when Jesus Christ returns. Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. And most of us are going to need all the mercy we can get. So it probably would behoove us to be merciful in who we deal with and how we deal with people. Point number three. God is going to be looking for people that have a very deep respect for the Word of God. If we're going to reign with Jesus Christ, we are going to have to develop the same deep respect for the Word of God. We live in an era today, an age today, where people think the Bible is just another book. You know, we don't have to worry too much about that. That's old stuff. And especially that Old Testament. That's old. Nobody bothers with that anymore. Well, that's going to be the, the, some of the fundamental things we're going to be teaching out of in the coming kingdom of God. Notice the attitude that God is looking for. Discussing this earlier with several individuals. You know, I grew up in a Protestant church, and I can remember hearing older people say, well, I just pray that God would show me what his will is. And people sometimes spend their entire life trying to find out what God's will is for their life. And yet the Bible tells us these things. Isaiah chapter 66, in verse 2. We could go to a number of different places. <clears throat> In Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2, God tells us what he's looking for, what he wants to see in us. Here's what we can do to get ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Latter part of that verse says, but on this one will I look. If you've ever written a resume, a lot of times you'll ask, well, what are they looking for? And I'll emphasize that in my resume. This is what God is looking for. He tells us it's no big mystery. But on this one or this person will I look, on him who is poor. Well, that probably fits all of us when we look at our bank account. But the word here means humble. It means lowly. It means depressed. Now, that doesn't mean that you're walking around, woe is me. But if you take a balloon, put a pin in it, what happens? All the hot air comes out. <laughs> it's depressed. That's what God is looking for. Uh, someone that has been flattened, so to speak. <laughs> of a contrite heart, what does that mean? It means a person that's repentant. God, show me how to do it your way. As opposed to, well, God, just hang on a bit. I'm going to try my way. We've got to learn that it's got to be God's way. A person that is contrite will be sorry for things that they've done wrong, and they will desire to do better. They want to change. And that is an attitude God can work with, begin to mold and fashion us. 
But this is what he's looking for, a person that's poor, a person that is, is humble, that wants to change and grow. But the last sentence here, and who trembles at my word, who fears to disobey the words of God, that wants to do it God's way, as opposed to a person that argues with the word of God. Well, I know what it says, but <laughs> here's what I think. You ever said that? You ever heard others say that? Yeah. I know what the church teaches, but here's what I think. Why does the church teach it if it's not in the book? If the church teaches it's in the book, then why are you arguing? <laughs> What's the big deal? God says, I'm looking for those who tremble at my word, who want to do it God's way. This is what God is looking for. You know, if we're going to be teachers in the coming kingdom of God, we've got to be sold on the book. If we got problems with the book and then we're hoping to be in the kingdom, we're hoping for something that's not going to happen. Notice in Isaiah chapter 2. And this is jumping ahead just a little bit, but we'll, be, we'll continue to move ahead. Isaiah chapter 2. It's talking about the latter days and come to pass in the latter days. Verse 2, the mountain of the Lord's house, in other words, the headquarters of God's government, shall be established on top of the mountains over everything. It will be exalted above the hills. Nations will flow to it. They'll look to it, you know, to Jerusalem for instruction. Latter part of verse 3, it says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the laws and the statutes. It's going to be projected out from there. We will go out as representatives explaining this is the way to do it. This is what's coming, and we can prepare for these things. I'd encourage you to spend a little bit of time in a personal Bible study to just go through Psalm 119. You can start at the beginning and go the whole way through. But notice the attitude that David reflects. Now, let's just... Read a couple verses, Psalm 119, verse 1. Is this your attitude? Is this my attitude? Are we ready for the return of Jesus Christ? David says in verse 1, Blessed are the undefiled or the blameless in the way who walk in the law of God. The word blessed means to be envied because things are working out in their life. Down in verse 12, it says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Show me. Show me how I need to live. Show me how to do things. Now, David was intelligent. He was a king. But this was his attitude. This is why he is going to be the king over Israel in the kingdom of God. Verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This was David's attitude. Verse 18, Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your law. We've got people today say, well, that, that's Old Testament stuff, that law business and all that legalism. You know, God's laws are to point us in a direction. And this was David's attitude. Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things in your law. He was a teacher of biology for a number of years. When I first came into the church, I learned about the dietary laws. And I had questions. Well, why? Why can't we eat those things? 
Why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? I took a course in parasitology in medical school, and I began to realize why we shouldn't be eating certain things. You know, pigs have tapeworms, cows have tapeworms, sheep have tapeworms. But the tapeworms from pigs don't just stay in your intestine. They can get into the bloodstream and get into your brain. You know, so there are reasons. The more you dig into these things, the more you begin to understand God set these things there for reasons. And these arguments we heard you know, 10 years ago that, well, there, there's no health benefits to those laws. They're just to separate the Israelites. Baloney. Baloney. Anybody that knows anything about microbiology or spend some time in that field will come to realize, whoa, these things are powerful. And Moses was writing this before they had microscopes. <laughs> he didn't know about bacteria and things like that. But the more you read, the more you understand, David says, open my eyes, help me to see why these laws are there. These are powerful things. Now, this stuff I'm talking about, parasitic diseases, may not mean too much to us because we've got chlorinated water and we've got a lot of um, good sanitation things here. But you go outside the U.S. in a developing world, understanding these principles will prevent thousands and thousands of, of deaths and suffering. And this was the job of the Levites to teach these things, not medical doctors, but Levites, to explain these things, the laws of God and how beneficial they are. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Jump ahead. <clears throat> Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. Is this our attitude towards the laws of God? Or have you been sucked into this very deceptive approach that, well, this is all legalism? This is all legalism. No, understanding the laws of God is a pathway. David said in verse 5, Your word is a lamp to my feet. He didn't say, God, your word is a bunch of legalism. I just can't wait till I'm free of all this was not his approach. He said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, more than fine gold. Do we deeply respect and value the word of God? You know, we hope to teach it in the coming kingdom of God. This is the approach we need to develop. Point number four, preparing a people. We need to prepare to teach in the coming kingdom of God. We need to be preparing. You know, I really, I spend a lot of my time in school, but I don't think I really learned to master a subject until I had to teach it. You know, it's one thing to study to take a test and memorize answers. It's another thing to turn around and teach these concepts where you've got to be able to explain and say, here's how it all fits together. We've been called to teach, not just answer questions on a quiz, <laughs> but we've been called to teach and explain the benefits of the laws of God, how they are applied, and the consequences that come from not following those laws. 
We just read in Isaiah 2 the fact that the law will go forth from Jerusalem. So we know what's going to happen. When Christ returns, sets up a government, he's going to be using people to teach the rest of the world the laws of God. Notice in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. This is what's going to happen. You can be part of this. I can be part of this. If we catch the vision, if we see the big picture. Isaiah 11, verse 9, it says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God. This is what's coming. This is what you can be part of. Helping to fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Can you just visualize what's going to happen on this earth if we project into the future? And Mr. Ames is the only broadcaster allowed? Scary, isn't it? (laughs) But, you know, we're not going to be having all the foolishness on television that we do today. But if we have trained ministers and trained teachers explaining God's way of life, and we're using satellite television and everything else, we're going to have an impact on this world. Things are going to change. It's going to become exciting. But my question is, are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that? You know, if we have a television station that goes around the world, people are going to want to ask personal questions. And if he says on the program, we will have a personal representative come to your home if you ask, who's he going to send? Could he send you? Uh, Not me, not me. I'm not a teacher. Why not? How long have you been sitting here listening to sermons? (laughs) 20 years, 30 years? We need to be preparing and thinking ahead because this is what's coming. The earth is going to be full of the knowledge of God. Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21. This is what's coming. Are we ready for this? Are we excitedly preparing? You know, I think some people may have wondered, I don't know why I need to take any courses from Living University. I'm in a church. Well, I've talked to some other people said, I am really excited. And they're trying to soak up as much as they can because they see what's coming. And they want to be prepared. Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21, Though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be removed or not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers, and your ears will hear a word behind you saying, Ah, 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 think about that. (laughs) There's a better way. Remember? You know, think about that decision. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or the left hand. But this is what's coming. Are we preparing to teach in the coming kingdom of God? You know, are we teaching at home? For those of you that have little children, you have a chance to mold and fashion lives. And I think it's really tragic today that some people say, well, we'll get a babysitter for the kids and I'm going to go back to work. Who's going to mold and fashion these young minds? You know, what was the phrase? that uh, The hand that rocks the cradle? What? Rules the world. These are very powerful responsibilities. I'm very glad that my wife didn't want to work outside the home. 
when the boys were growing up. You know, when we were teaching, I was teaching at Ambassador College a number of years ago, and the kids were little. We made a decision. You know, there was a lot of pressure to be involved with everything. I think one semester I was uh, taking care of two clubs and trying to play basketball because other people played basketball. And I realized we were having babysitters some weeks, three and four nights a week. I sat down with my wife and I said, we need to change something here. We're not going to let babysitters raise our kids. We need to be raising our kids. And I backed out of some of my responsibilities that I had voluntarily taken. And we devoted time to those kids. You know, as they were growing up, I got some pressure from some people, leave them at home, just go out you know, by yourselves and come out with us as adults. And my answer was, we're not going to have them that much longer. We're not going to have them that much longer. And we want to spend time with them now while they're growing up, while they need us. You know, so we need to be careful. We don't get sucked into the way the world does things. We need to do things differently and come out of this world and leave the world behind. We have a chance to teach at home. Those of you that have opportunities to speak in sermons or sermonettes, uh, take those opportunities seriously. And for those of you ladies that will not be speaking up here, you will be talking with other people, your friends, your neighbors. Are you able to give a reason for the hope that lies within you? And explain the way of God to people who ask. We've been called to become teachers. You cannot teach what you don't know. One of the reasons for starting Living University is to make the truth of God available to people all around the world. So it's not surprising why Satan's fingers were in the pie last week. <laughs> you know, for Dr. Giovanna's computer just to stop working for no reason. You take it to the shop and say, we can't find any reason why it doesn't work. Well, there are reasons why it doesn't work. You know, Satan is called our adversary, and he will try to disrupt. See, we're doing something that is historical, whether we sense it right now or not. I think we will look back and see. Well, we've been called to become teachers. Uh, you, know, you can go to uh, Ezra. I've done this before, but let's do it again very quickly here. You know, Ezra was coming back to teach God's people in Jerusalem that were coming back from captivity. And we're told how he prepared for that job. We know what our job is going to be coming down the road. And we need to be preparing also for what's coming. And Ezra chapter 7 talks about... Uh, <clears throat> you get in the right book here. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, says, This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. Now, you don't become a skilled scribe by watching TV, football games, basketball games, whatever, <laughs> soap operas. He was a skilled scribe. He was trained. He was educated. He studied. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given in verse 10, it says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it, the statutes and the ordinances in Israel. 
Ezra knew what his job was going to be, coming back to Jerusalem and teaching people that had been in captivity for 70 years. They'd probably forgotten things, picked up wrong habits, wrong thoughts. He studied the Word of God. He prepared his heart for what he had to do. And you can read in Nehemiah where he came back, stood up on a platform just like this, and explained the law to people. And they were excited, learning the truth. This is what we've been called to do. Are we excited about these things? Keep in mind, you can't teach what you don't know. So we want to learn as much as we can so that we can teach it, that we are prepared. We're to be functioning as kings and priests. Revelation 5, verse 10. We're to function as civil and religious leaders in the coming kingdom of God. What do civil leaders do? They function as mayors. They function as governors. They function as leaders in society. They make decisions that affect other people. Are we developing the same perspective? Religious leaders teach the truth of God. Are we preparing to do that? We've talked a lot about servant leadership. Notice in Revelation, excuse me, in Matthew twenty, Matthew twenty. This is one of the places where the concept comes from. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 20, where the mother of James and John came to Jesus Christ and asked if her two boys could just have a little small favor, you know, the top two jobs in the kingdom. Didn't go over well with the other disciples. You got your mom to go up there and ask him that. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? You're trying to get ahead of us, which they were. This is carnal human beings. But notice Jesus' response. Verse 25, Jesus called them to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And Gentiles aren't the only people that like to lord it over people. It's part of human nature. And those who are great exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to be great among you, it's not wrong to desire to serve. It is wrong if we focus on a position. Well, that's got to be my position. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And we talked a lot about servant leadership, but as I've been mentioning in the regional conferences this summer. Servant leadership is two words. It involves being a servant. And it involves being a leader. You, know, you can serve by moving the chairs around and you know, making sure everything's working here and you're directing traffic. That's serving. You see somebody that needs help, you serve them, you help them. But being a leader involves thinking in a different dimension. A leader is a person that has a sense of vision of where things need to go. And you motivate people to move in that direction. One definition of leadership I came across was a leader takes people to places they would have never gone on their own. Now, you've got to make sure you're taking them in the right direction because you can lead them down the wrong path. But leadership is a different dimension of thinking. You're thinking out ahead. What's coming down the road? How can we prepare for that? So we need to be growing in our capacity to serve as well as lead. 
That's what you know, John was talking about, becoming kings and priests, not just doorkeepers, not just doorkeepers in the kingdom, but leaders in the coming kingdom of God that explain, that show the way, that encourage, that motivate, and sometimes correct. We have to do some things like that in love and in mercy. So developing leadership qualities, servant leadership qualities. Remember, it's two words, serving and leading. And we need to be preparing for both. Point number six, and I'm cheating here. I'm going to put two things on number six. We need to learn to work as a team and stay focused on our mission. We need to learn to work together as a team and stay focused on our mission. You can read Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about unity and working together. It's really the job of the ministry. Part of the job of the ministry is to, is to encourage and help people work together and understand why we're not working well together. It was interesting talking with some of the fellows in the IT department. It uh, seemed like they got a number of experiences over the summer that they were able to pull together this week. And and they came to understand maybe why they had learned the lesson earlier, started putting this all together and working together to achieve a goal. But in Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> beginning in verse 11, it says, He gave some apostles, prophets, some evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, one that's complete, spiritually mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we are no longer tossed about by doctrine to and fro, and by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. And we've seen this over the last number of years. People come up with all kinds of reasons you know, for starting their own church and doing various things and putting a special twist on a doctrine. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together, working together. You know, it's been interesting looking back, sad in a way, looking back over the last 10, 15 years, we're going to be actually starting football season here. It's in the papers already. So we're going to be using football terminology for those of you that may be listening around the world. We're talking about American football. <laughs> but, you know, it's really kind of sad if you've been part of the team for 20, 30, 40 years. We're down to the nine-yard line. The clock is running down. We've got... Uh, first down and goal to go. And somebody on the front line stands up and says, I don't want to be on this team anymore. I don't like the way things are running on this team. I think I'm going to quit. I'm going to go start my own team. I mean, put it in perspective. Here we are coming down to the finish line. We've been working together for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and then somebody stands up and says, I don't like the way things are run around here. I'm going to start my own church. Are we thinking? Or have we been taken in 
that we've been taken in. You know, in Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10, do we forget these scriptures? If we do, we're going to be blindsided. Verse 9, it says, The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Now, we tend to think sometimes, yeah, the world's deceived. <laughs> we couldn't be deceived. You want to bet? We can be. One of the lectures that we gave in the regional conference, we talked about self-deception, where you just focus on certain facts and you conveniently ignore other facts. And we can deceive ourselves. Who deceives the whole world? He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God, uh, of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren to accuse them before God day and night has been cast down. Do we ever get into a mode where we're accusing? I just don't like the way these things are run around here. Go back and read Deuteronomy. Start with Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27. Moses talked about the Israelites murmuring in their tents. What is murmuring? Grumble, grumble, grumble. I don't like this. I don't like that. You know, Israelites have this interesting capacity. Watch as we get closer to the elections. You'd wonder, how on earth could these candidates ever run a country because none of them are credible <laughs> when the things are said about them? Yet we have got to be careful, brethren. We're not sucked into this critical mode. We've been called to work together as team members, to bear fruit together. We need to work together as a team, and we need to stay focused on our mission. Let me give you an assignment. Go home and read the book of Nehemiah. Read the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah came back. He was upset because the walls of Jerusalem were crumbling. And he prayed to God. He said, God, let me do something. He went and asked the king, let me do something. I want to go back and rebuild those walls. And he came back. And then the enemies around started giving him a bad time. Look what they're doing. That is so ridiculous. They're trying to start a university. I'm jumping time frames here. <laughs> but it fits. Nehemiah came back to build the walls. They laughed at him. Said he's, he's silly. And then they said, come sit down and let's talk about this whole thing. The idea was let's stop them from working. And they said, we've got some good-looking girls over here. Come on and marry our, wife, our, our girls. They were doing everything they could to disrupt the work. And Nehemiah kept saying, no, I don't have time to talk to you. Well, let us help you build. He said, no, we're going to build it. <laughs> he resisted all this flack that was coming because he was focused. But when they, they, when they finished the job, you can read it for yourself in uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 17. It said, when they finished the job, they looked back and they realized God had had a hand in this whole thing. God had had a hand in the whole thing. God apparently was the one that inspired and put it in Nehemiah's mind to go back and build the, the, the walls. He was the one that guided everything. He gave them favor in the eyes of the king. God's hand became obvious in the whole thing. I think, as I mentioned, we were so busy on Wednesday, 
Some people away from here said, you know, this is a very historic day with the beginning of Living University. For me, it was a day like all days, <laughs> except I was there. <laughs> I was busy working on a course outline. The guys out in IT were busy trying to make the software work. We were caught up in, in the excitement of the moment, whereas people away from here said, this is a historic day. Things are happening that are very historic today. I think we will look back maybe 10, 15 years from now and realize God had a hand in the work that he called us to be part of. And the Bible also talks about the beweeping and gnashing of teeth on the part of some who realized, I was there and I walked away. It was first down, goal to go, time is running out, and I decided to look for another team or start another team and to leave. But the Bible is going to, I think it's going to be very sobering when people read some of these scriptures in the years ahead. When it talks about a weeping and a gnashing of teeth, it's talking about people that were there, that could have been part of the team, could have finished the work, and they got distracted. Because there is a being that wants to accuse. He wants to disrupt. He wants to keep the work from being done. And we've got to be careful we don't get sucked into that orbit. Brethren, are you prepared for what's coming? Are you excited about what's coming? Will you be ready when it does come? Let's not be caught by surprise. Let's stay focused, let's work together, and let's accomplish the mission that God has given to us.